Good afternoon. Uh, I am very happy to see that this motion is being uh, taken into consideration. Um, I would argue that if there is a, uh, a challenge that is posed by recently Ellis Act uh, evictions, that we could easily make a kind of a carve-out that says that if a unit was Ellis acted within the last five years per state law, then it doesn't have uh, this kind of an empty homes tax applying to it. So uh, that one... So for the author? What was that? Is that an amendment for the author? I, I would suggest as a response to the previous public comment that was made at the start of this uh, hearing. My uh, further suggestion would be to, if we are going to be looking at making some amendments to the motion, that we would consider including an amendment to uh, impose a similar tax to vacant commercial properties. Because the vacant commercial properties on the ground floor of so many of the buildings here in downtown uh, are simply a blight upon this local economy and on the local community, making areas that are uh, very difficult for pedestrians to make use of and are just generally uh, undesirable. Thank you. Thank you very much. Specifically, you're talking about the mixed use. Uh... Correct. Specifically, things like the Jeff Palmer developments. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about a whole lot of very different stuff. We've got an update on the empty homes tax, uh, as well as one on Andy No to go back into detail about uh, you know following up from Bushido's in-depth reporting on Andy No from a few weeks back. Um, we've also got some extremely <laughs> exactly. We've also got some extremely breaking news uh, on housing here in California. Literally just cropped up as we were going through the script here before recording, uh, as well as some cops y'all content, some absolutely ridiculous electrical vehicle rebate news from uh, our favorite boy, Eric Garcetti, um, a charter school conspiracy to steal all of the LAUSD students away from our public schools. Um, we're also going to be talking about a tragic murder on Skid Row and a damning and controversial on it of Lhasa to close things out for this week. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. I've uh, had kind of a long uh, and interesting week uh, doing a lot yeah. of Sunrise stuff. So, uh, yeah, Hell to kind yeah, of loop dude. you all in. So we had Sunrise has been holding uh, regional summits across the country. And the first one was in Detroit before the presidential debate. Uh, the next one was on the West Coast. So I spent last weekend up in Berkeley on this really cool urban farm called Urban Autumn. And it was kind of like... I'll describe it as like a diet kibbutz because it's not really a working farm, but it's kind of that same <laughs> model of like food crops and also some small yeah. livestock and stuff like that. But it's mainly an educational huh. center and kind of like a garden center. Uh, but we had 400 people up there uh, learning like wow. Sunrise organizing, doing training. I led a training on fundraising for a lot of Sunrise folks, which they were really excited for. Um, it was interesting because like my my co-facilitator for that was like, I don't think a lot of people are going to show up. It's going to be one of the smaller ones. And we turned out to be one of the larger, like, trainings that were happening because fundraising matters for nonprofits. Uh, and then... Uh, Funny kind how of that works, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's, it's weird. Uh, but then uh, on the heels of that, here in Arizona, we're getting ready to throw our first statewide training in a couple of weeks. Um, and so, like, this Sunrise Summit was, like, 
really inspiring. And we were up there with a lot of Sunrise Los Angeles. A few people made it out from Arizona. Uh, somebody made it all the way from Alaska. Uh, one of the Whoa. art leads. Yeah, one of the art <laughs> fellows made it all the way out from Missouri. Uh, so we had people from Damn. all over the Western U.S. Uh, and it was really... Wait, just, Missouri is the Western U.S.? Well because, she's a, well, because she's a fellow with Sunrise, she got tapped to come oh. out and, and lead the like art. So we made like gotcha. yeah. hundreds of banners, just screen printed like everything. Um, yeah, they I saw like really tons great. of footage of all of that being live streamed from uh, the DNC event that was going on that you guys kind of. Yeah, know, I was I was going to mention bit. that one, too, was the um, well, I almost forgot. Thank you for reminding me. But we also oh, yeah. like the DNC voted on whether or not they're going to hold a climate debate. And that was one reason yeah. why the Sunrise Summit happened when it did was so we could have a direct action telling the, the uh, yeah. DNC to have a climate debate. They decided not to. But what they did do was form an environment and climate change caucus. Uh, and one of the Sunrisers that I worked with in L.A., is the youth representative on that caucus now, which is really, really cool. So we kind nice. of got like a decent win, but we we didn't get the win that we were really hoping for. But we definitely made our presence known. And like a bunch of presidential candidates showed up. Uh, Tim Ryan came out to speak to us. Uh, oh, Andrew right, Yang. Yeah. Yeah, Andrew Yang showed up, and he was actually pretty funny because uh, he showed up, and he was like, hey, you all know me as the UBI guy, and so since you're here for climate change, that, I want to talk to you like, about... the to the Hills guy. Yeah, well, he was like, since I'm since uh, I'm here to uh, since you're here for climate change, I want to talk to you about UBI, and that was a good joke to kind of like what? you know roll into it. Um, oh, and then uh, Nina Turner also showed up. Uh, Bernie did a and town hall later in the day uh, with the with the Sunrise Movement and talked about his climate plan, uh, which is really bold. I, it's so far my favorite climate plan from any Democratic yes. presidential candidate. Uh, and then this week. I've been helping uh, present at a series of climate town halls. Uh, they're being hosted by Elders uh, Climate Action, which is kind of like a response for you know older people who want to be in the environmental movement, sort of like youth climate strike. Um, but they've been having kind of educational town halls and like getting people up to speed on what's going on with climate action, what different groups are doing in Arizona, how we're kind of like beginning to build towards a sustainable Arizona. And it was good. Like people were excited to learn about Sunrise, to, to find out what we're about to sort of talk about what the Green New Deal is and what it could mean for Arizona. Uh, there was, like, this is my main criticism that I want to go off on for a minute is there's a lot of talk about carbon pricing right now. And, like, where I'm at in Arizona, that's kind oh, of dominating no. the conversation. And, like, it's oh, understandable that, like, the formation of the Green New Deal will probably include <laughs> some sort of carbon pricing in it. But yeah, at the same time, like, carbon pricing is not the end-all, be-all of our organizing. Absolutely. And I'm kind of, like coming up against it's this wall. It's almost like the markets don't actually work for this shit. Yeah, and th this one is also like a real distension of the market because it's unless it's done exactly right, it can be very regressive yeah. and it can be really harmful Absolutely. to people. And it doesn't, you know, it works if you live in a city where you can control your consumption and like you don't have to drive because there's public transit. But if you're in rural America and suddenly you're paying, you know, 300% for gas and you have to have a truck to drive around and do your job, it becomes a super like regressive tax on you and stops you from being able yeah. to live your life. So there's a real like, there's an eye of the needle that has to be threaded on carbon pricing, and no one's really talking about that. They're, they're really just talking about it as like this brute force. If we price carbon, everyone will like change their consumption, and that'll solve global warming. And I mean, it, it doesn't, and even by their own projections, it still wouldn't keep us below two degrees centigrade. Like, it just wouldn't meet yeah. what we need to meet, um, which is something the I want to point... The time for carbon pricing was like 20 years ago, and at this point, it's really just like, the debate has moved on. Stop. Just drop the topic. 
Like, yep. yeah, maybe we'll have some level of carbon pricing, but we've moved so, so far beyond that, especially with like our understanding of how all of these systems really work and how that the interplay between all of these factors comes together to result in us just facing this complete environmental catastrophe. Like, it's just absurd that folks are, are focusing any real amount of energy on a carbon tax solution because it just it, it just doesn't work. It will not get us where we need to go. End of yeah. story. No, exactly. And it, it, it also is one of these where, like, energy demand is inelastic. Like, you can't really cut down yeah. the amount of energy you're using at a certain <laughs> point. Like, you have on. a minimum level you're always going to be using, especially if you're in a place <laughs> like Arizona where, like, it was yeah. 112 uh, two days ago. It was 108, and then it's 110. Like, without AC people would die and AC is incredibly energy intensive and they don't get to decide where their energy is coming from, mm. but they'll be paying more yeah. just to try and like not die from overheating. So there's a whole raft of issues that come with it. And like we can, you know, move away from carbon pricing as the ultimate solution sure, with though. like different ways of like modeling our society and like different ways of development. But overall it was really good. And this is kind of like a conversation that we're still having. And it's something where, I'm kind of trying to radicalize more normie boomer folks and to think about like frontline issues <laughs> and like actual like frontline communities when we're talking about it. Because yeah, so many of the people I'm talking to and that are involved in this movement here in Arizona are like very mm -hmm. nice white people, but like they have more money and education than a lot of the people in our state. And they don't understand that solutions that will work for them, like buying a Tesla, are not going to work for a lot of people. And that they're <laughs> they're thinking within a very restricted box. Um, and it's very like classist. Why and can't regressive. everyone just get a Tesla? Come on, man. Exactly. We'll just Tesla's we'll all for have everyone. <laughs> But it, 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 you know, overall it was it was great, and I'm kind of excited to see the way this this builds, especially as we're coming towards uh, September 20th when we're going to have the global climate strike, and that's going to be a week of actions between the 20th and the 27th, and I'm really excited to see what happens. I I, I know there's going to be big actions happening across uh, the country and across the world, and a lot of young people are really fed up and are like, now is the time to enter into like non-compliance and to start showing that we're serious, and you know, just to to tie a bow onto this. We have less than 18 months to peak carbon emissions across the globe. And as things are going now, we're going to miss that. So, like, the conversation we need to start having now isn't just, like, carbon pricing and the Green New Deal. We need to also be talking, when we miss the goals that we need to be hitting, how are we yeah. going to build resilient communities that are going to survive the climate crisis? Because that shit is here, and it's only going to get worse. Uh, you know, just look at Florida and Hurricane Dorian. This is the new normal. Um, yeah. And, you know, fortunately in California, it's been a really light fire season so far. But then again, some of the biggest fires in started. state history did We're not start until started. November. You know, yeah. the fire season in California used to be six months. Now it's like 11 months. Uh, and that's not going yeah. to change for a very long time just with the amount of carbon that we've put into the air. So, you know, I've had a, a long week of, like, organizing Sunrise stuff and getting really active in that. So I'm really, like, excited to see where it goes and to sort of see the power that we're building um, and, and to kind of keep moving on this. On, on that note, too, I am pretty worn out. So if I, I stop making sense at some point, don't blame me. Uh, blame the fact that I have to spend all of my, my free time organizing to save the world. Uh, and that's, that's me just playing the martyr for a second. But uh, well, we let's appreciate go the effort, so... 
<laughs> but let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's chat about the empty homes tax. And you were actually at the housing committee uh, where I the was, city council yeah. is discussing this and uh, how it may or may not get onto the ballot. So uh, where is Bonin's empty home tax standing right now? Well, so it was fun because it was actually like probably one of the shortest committee hearings that I have uh, ever seen. I, I pulled the uh, the MP3 audio from it. And it's like 39 minutes long. They like it was literally just an incredibly short meeting. Um, but Mike Bonin actually showed up to talk about uh, this empty homes penalty and uh, discussed it at length with uh, council members Krikorian and Cedillo who were the only two members present on the housing committee. Uh, and so and they're they, supposed they, to be, what, five people on the committee? I believe so. I, I'd have to double check the, um, uh, the agenda for the committee to take a look at who exactly is supposed to be on it. But literally two of them were there and uh, it, it, it advanced. Um, and nice. so they, they added a couple of uh, amendments that were very friendly amendments um, talking about including uh, LADWP and all relevant uh, agencies that have any kind of data that could possibly be used for figuring out exactly what is going on relating to the number of empty homes in the city of Los Angeles. So yep. the reason why uh, LADWP data is particularly relevant is that that is actually the mechanism, one of the mechanisms that was used by the city of Vancouver for determining vacancy rates and uh, for, for checking on folks as to whether or not they were being truthful in their statements about being uh, having these properties be rented or not. So, in Canada, what they what they did with with Vancouver was they particularly said, okay, if it's your primary residence, then that needs to be where your like national health insurance registration is set up, uh, right. and if the address of your national health reg health insurance registration does not match up with your primary residence, uh, then uh, we're going to tax it. Uh, and yeah. then the, you know, there are a couple of caveats for like, if it's under construction, if it's going through renovation, if it's otherwise not livable and blah, 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 all of these little technical details mm -hmm. that people get all kinds of hung up on, uh, you get, you can, you know, get a, an exclusion and, and get an exemption for, from the tax for whatever period of time. So the, the inclusion of LADWP data in this calculation is, uh, I think going to be pretty, pretty interesting to see what kind of stuff we get out of that. Uh, assuming that they have time in between uh, their raids by the FBI and whatnot uh, to actually collect that data and give it to the city. Um, but uh, one of the interesting things that happened during uh, during this committee hearing was that the the one of the I think it was actually the first comment period uh, was taken up by a a former member of the uh, Apartments Association of Greater Los Angeles. AGLA, which I had not heard anybody vocalize that acronym before, but apparently that's what it is. Uh, the, this guy was a former member of AGLA, and uh, he jumped in and said that this, this proposed tax runs uh, contrary to state law relating to Ellis Act evictions, and that if you have an apartment that is uh, that you've Ellis acted, then you need to keep it vacant for five years. And that if the city were to come in and impose a tax on an apartment in that five year period, that uh, you would be contravening state law and therefore it would be uh, up for a court uh, to make a decision as to what the hell's going on. And uh, truth of the matter is that this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah, well, the thing I was going to say was like, that makes no sense because when I see Ellis Act evictions happen, they're not getting 
taken off the market for five years to be rented later. They're just getting turned into condos. Like they're Correct. just being put up for private sale. No, this guy and this idea that like shit. anyone out there that's sitting <laughs> on like empty apartments is actually waiting the five years, I think is just yeah. like a fictional straw man. Like in the Ellis Act, they put that in there as like a bone to toss to the tenants' rights folks to be like, oh, you know, this will just stop people from abusing the law to like keep renting apartments <laughs> when that was never the intent of Ellis anyways. It was it was to grease yeah. the evictions process so you could sell condos. Well, so then this guy from the Apartments Association of Greater Los Angeles, formerly of the Apartments Association of Greater Los Angeles, came out and kind of like gave away the game talking about how he's like, oh, well, if you want to get these, basically he was talking about how it is that you can get and you can do an Ellis Act eviction and then five years later you can put the market rate, uh, put the apartment back on the market at the market rate without suffering any penalties. Uh, so you can actually go ahead and if you evict somebody, you can uh, relist the apartment later, you just have to pay a hefty fee. And so what he's complaining about is like, oh my God, like if you charge me this tax, then I wouldn't be able to escape by without having to pay this fee by sitting on this vacant property for five years. It's, I mean, the whole thing is absolutely absurd. But anyway, I, I decided to spend like some of my one, my, my full 60 seconds that I get to talk about these things when I give comment at these committee hearings, I decided to like address this guy's concern and be like, hey, if this is actually a thing, which I should have realized it wasn't because he was arguing in bad faith, because of course he was arguing in bad faith. Um, yep. I should have, I, I decided to spend a little bit of my time addressing that. And then Cedillo actually interrupted me in the ha. middle of my comment, which they're not supposed to do. And his interruption along with like my responding to him took up like a good 12 to like 15 seconds of my comment period. Uh, which means that he took up like one fifth of the time that I get to actually say anything uh, to the folks on this committee. Uh, and then, you know, it was actually funny because I, I, I kind of managed to get back on track and kind of finish before the 60 seconds ran out, even though he ate up a bunch of the time. Um, and then he had another follow up question. So I got to just keep on talking a little bit and, and respond to him after my time ran out. And uh, my, my suggestion was that we include uh, commercial property in this vacancy tax and that we, we charge folks uh, who are sitting on vacant commercial properties, especially in these mixed use developments. We're uh, looking at when, you, David Palmer. Uh, Jeff Palmer. Uh, but yes, the, uh, Good point. the, the, the uh, so I, I I actually explicitly called out Jeffrey Palmer in my response to Sadio when he you know asked for further clarification as to whether or not I was talking about mixed use properties. Technically, I would wouldn't care. I would love to see it applied to commercial properties across the city, regardless of whether or not they're a mixed use property, because uh, you know landlords squatting on vacant commercial property in. Uh, in strip malls is just as, you know, n just as much of a negative impact as landlords squatting on vacant commercial property underneath a whole bunch of housing that's built up on top of it in downtown. Like, it's a bad thing. It is a blight upon local communities and on the local economy to have these empty storefronts just sitting around. And you see them all over the place, specifically in regard to every single building that Jeffrey Palmer has constructed in Los Angeles, other than the one that's like just down the street from me, 
um, the Broadway Palace Apartments because that one, uh, he didn't get to do his normal routine of let me build a shitty faux renaissance apartment complex that looks like a giant fortress and is totally unapproachable and hostile to all pedestrian traffic and then wonder why it is that we can't get any commercial uh, interest in renting out this space that we have on well, the and, ground and, floor. And it's almost like he's only including the commercial spaces to capture like tax incentives to like it's build his crappy apartments, you know? Because yeah. I think they've. I, I, and then they burn I, down sometimes, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but no, I, I, I think it was going back like a few uh, a few years. The LA Times was talking about this. We're not. And it was like 80% of the businesses that open on the ground floor of the Jeffrey Palmer um, like, you know, developments close within the first year because nobody knows they're there. Like if you look at these storefronts it's most of the time you can't tell them. if it's a storefront like it yeah. doesn't look like a storefront or something you can walk into it looks like a fortress it's every single window is recessed like a good couple of feet from the sidewalk everything is in these like sloping uh just like a completely oppressive fortress like features it literally looks like the bottom of a a medieval castle where, but it's like covered in stucco instead of actually being like an earthenwork or uh, masonry uh, construction. It's just this weird sloped feature. And then like the windows and the doors are cut in with like this inset. And like, so I said the, the Broadway palace apartments, like those actually seem to be working. Like, I mean, West Elm is actually renting from him and as well as a bunch of other uh, big name, um, you know, retailers, they're renting from him because for once, he didn't get to build the type of style that he normally goes with and instead had to comply with like uh, style requirements from the community development plan. And it actually kind of looks like a building that it belongs on Broadway. And it actually creates a very hospitable, very approachable uh, pedestrian friendly environment with big glass windows that say, hey, we've got stuff that we're selling here. And it brings people into the space and opens things up. And there's actually encouraging pedestrian traffic and engaging with folks like, I mean, I, we are not fans of, you know, rampant capitalism. We, we are openly socialist on this podcast. But if you're going to be talking about how to build like a business friendly environment, Jeffrey Palmer is the absolute case study to look at when it comes to how to not build your buildings in a dense urban environment uh, if you want them to actually be successful as far as commercial real estate is concerned. So, All I'm going to tell yeah. you is that when the Visigoths finally attack, you're going to wish that you lived in like the Orsini. You're going to look at those those like no. cannonball-proof walls and be like, damn, I should have gotten a place in there. No, because you could just walk through those empty, unrented commercial properties and get straight to the stairwell, and then you're fine. You're just getting right in. Like it's not a, It doesn't provide any protection. It just looks like it and is totally hostile to any pedestrians. But so uh, for the, the time being, yeah. it looks like the, the empty home tax <laughs> is going to be heading towards the ballot. They still haven't decided if it's going to be a March or a November thing, but it looks like we will get to vote on this. It, it, it eventually, yeah. So this was this was literally the first hearing for this uh, measure for this motion, and so at this point, it now needs to. It, it's basically been approved to go uh, to full to the full council for a vote, um, from what I understand. And then so the council will vote on it, and then it will go off to. Uh, the legislative analyst office and whoever else needs to take a look at it, they'll come back with recommendations about how to actually implement such a tax and then what would happen to uh, the implementation timeframe, the actual, like, you know, the nuts and bolts of putting it on the ballot and all of that. And so it, it, we're, we're a long ways off, but it 
passed through this committee with extremely uh, little resistance. There was virtually no resistance, which was great. So uh, everyone was very happy, aside from the people from the California Apartments Association who came in and, of course, complained that it would be uh, imposing an undue burden upon... (laughs) upon apartment building owners yep. because uh yeah it's they say oh well it takes so long to rent things and then uh somebody had a very witty response from public comment saying well if it takes that long to rent it it means that you're trying to rent it at too high of a price uh which is correct no it's i'm i'm happy to hear that's moving in the right direction and i'm i'm happy to hear that it's like you know maybe some relief but i i also think that just the more pressure we can put on landlords uh to let them know that like these shady tactics are not going to continue and that the people of LA have had enough of them like creating this housing crisis and then profiting off of it is a step in the right direction. So uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's move on to our, our, our next topic, which uh, we're going to touch on briefly. It's uh, Andy No, uh, who is uh, one of my favorite journalists uh, in scare quotes. Um, but so uh, some video was leaked about a week ago uh, of him meeting up with like the Patriot Prayer kind of Proud Boys contingent as they headed towards Cedar Riot, which is like a hangout where a lot of folks go after actions to, you know, have a beer, um, hang out with their comrades, like, you know, decompress a little bit. Uh, it's been the site of like violence, well, property theft and like violence against property um, for radical organizers in the past. Like there was a guy that I was working with during the Occupy ICE movements uh, where after they had a big action, like he went to Cedar Riot and left his car parked in the parking lot and some fash came by and targeted his car and broke into it and stole all of his camera gear. Uh, But for this particular one, like Patriot Prayer showed up, they started a fight. Uh, A woman ended up having her neck broken uh, because she was hit by a metal baton. Yeah, it was very violent. Um, People were were injured and one woman very severely. Uh, The video finally came out that showed Andy No kind of reconnoitering with the, the folks from Patriot Prayer while they were texting with Joey Gibson and trying to figure out what was going on. That was finally the straw that broke the camel's back for Claire Lehman, the uh, terrible human being who edits and started the, again, I'm going to put it in, in scare quotes, you know, journalism outlet uh, Quillette, which if you like phrenology, you'll love Quillette. Um, but so after this video came out, uh, it was finally clear that like For Andy was not an objective journalist who just happened to be telling fash-friendly stories. It turned out he was actually collaborating openly and publicly with these reactionary and violent factions. So he was removed completely. Yeah. He was a featured editor on, or sorry, he was a contributing editor on Quillette. Uh, yeah. He has been removed from any of their listings. Uh, I believe all of his articles have been taken down. He also uh, ah. removed Quillette from his bio. Um, he basically got you know kicked to the curb by like the most right wing reactionary mainstream ish website out there. The Quillette <laughs> is like it's it's very kind of like stormfront but more dressed up and a little bit more like brooks brothers e like it's the kind of racism that like 
you know, the bell curve follows like, hey, I've got graphs and numbers that oh, prove God. that my racism's okay. So if you liked that Boris Johnson piece we did a few weeks ago for the reading series, like that's the kind of stuff. Oh, that yeah, Quillette, that's right. That, that yeah, that's Quillette. the kind of yeah. stuff they put out. So Andy No has been kicked out of uh, that particular outlet. Um, it remains to be seen what's going to happen so with I've the rest of got... his, his journalism career. Like Jake Tapper, when Andy got punched at that, that March a, a few weeks ago, um, or almost a month ago, I want to oh, say maybe right. a month ago. So uh, but Jake Tapper came out and like defended with Andy the, No. Uh, the cement milkshake. Yeah, and uh, Jake Tapper has not like withdrawn his support for Andy No. So we'll have to see what happens there. But uh. I have a feeling that No is not going to be gone for long. That Fox News, MSNBC, CNN will still be calling him up and asking him for comment because he's ready and willing and available and says a lot of stupid but very like clickbaity things. Oh, yeah. Um, but for the time being, yeah. uh, he's got he's running his own site, and he's also asking people to go to his Patreon, uh, which like of course he is. If you want to give Andy no money on his Patreon, just put it in a paper bag and burn it instead. Like just go to the ATM, yep. pull that exact same amount of money out, <laughs> burn it on the street. It'll be just as good a use. Um, but so no, no, actually, instead of doing that. Donate it to Ground Game and help us, you know, support the kind of activism that actually makes a difference in the world. That's a good point. We would rather that. burn your money for you. We will burn your money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, by, by doing actually useful things. But yeah. No, but it's funny because I'm, I'm actually looking right now at a MediaMatters.org article uh, by Courtney Hagel on exactly this with the headline saying... Media presented far-right grifter Andy No as a credible journalist. Yep. He was just caught covering for far-right extremists as they plan violent attacks. Yep. And it's got a screen cap from Fox News listing Andy No, journalist, Antifa attack, renewed criticism for Portland's mayor. It's just like, this guy is literally like the Asian dude who covers for all of the uh, white nationalists that are pushing the worst of the worst far-right agendas in this country, and he is just completely despicable and has nothing of any use to anyone to be contributing to the discourse, and he should just go away. Yeah, and he, he very much comes from uh, a place of Islamophobia, uh, as he likes to put it, Islamist oh, skepticism, sure. because, you know, saying you're Islamophobic oh, uh, codes as racist to a lot of people, because it is. Uh, but he he's... <laughs> He's very much always been sort of like Islam details, is in a details. war against the West. We need to defend Western civilization. That's why he lost his position at the Vanguard newspaper that he was at when he was doing uh, his oh. graduate studies at Portland University or at Portland State. Huh. Um, but even like the, the bigger question, and someone still has to answer this because no one can. Andy No was born in Portland, uh, lived there for like the vast majority of his life. He went to school at UCLA. Oh. Before oh, moving back to coming. Portland, but at some point uh -huh. he got a British accent, uh -huh. and no one knows where it came from. <laughs> it's really weird. Like he, he speaks with a British accent, and I think that he is very much in the Sebastian Gorka kind of like vein of thought, where oh, Americans oh, code no. British accents uh, as more trustworthy and as reliable. Intelligent, exactly. So he realized if I'm going to be selling the fascist like narrative I need to do everything I can to get every bit of credibility so he began this like faux British accent and he still got it you know he's still using it um, but no one no one can really explain uh, or chart exactly when it happened but that's kind of where I'm going to leave it is you know your your thought for the well, week no, so he jumped 
into a time machine. He flew over to London. He spent his entire childhood there developing and inculcating this accent. And then he flew back to the U.S., then hid the accent for years while he was going through high school and college. And then it came out after he realized that this was the grift that he wanted to be running and that this was the way he was going to make all of his money was by just just <laughs> flat out saying whatever the hell it took to get all these right-wing fascists to donate money to Oh, them. pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 you know, almost as bad as when, like, Madonna married Guy Ritchie and suddenly developed a British accent and everyone was like, uh, oh, yeah. you're from the Bronx. <laughs> Oh, but let's uh, yeah. Oh, so let's shit. yeah. Let's uh, let's tie this one off on a Andy No, and we definitely wish him the best. Uh, drifting, the um, you know, angry reactionary boomers for all they're worth. Um, but uh, yeah. so back to the back to the housing oh, front. Actually, this one's not depressing. Yeah. yeah. So back to the housing front. So uh, we have a couple Good of late news. breaking developments. Like literally, news broke as we were getting ready to record. So let's go ahead and talk about what's happening with uh, AB fourteen eighty two, which would be the statewide rent cap bill. Uh, it's been watered down a bunch since it was first introduced, but it looks like we might actually get some movement towards rent control across the state. Yeah, absolutely. So this this literally came out while we were uh, going through the discussion of what it is that we were going to be talking about on the podcast this week. And so let's just jump straight into it. So the the bill has made it out of the Appropriations Committee. And in a statement that came from uh, Governor Newsom, Senate Majority Leader uh, Tony Atkins from San Diego, um, Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon from Lakewood, and the author of the bill, David Chu from San Francisco, uh, quote, we are pleased to announce we have come to an agreement on a series of amendments to AB 1482 that would create strong renter protections. The bill will protect millions of renters from rent gouging and evictions and build on the legislature's work this year to address our broader housing crisis, end quote. So this is fantastic news. Like We're talking about an actual, uh, though limited, rent control for the entire state of California. Yeah. And it's so the, well, the big thing here is that rent is going to be capped, rent caps, or sorry, uh, we're capping rent increases statewide at a figure of 5% plus the inflation, so the CPI, per year for the whole next decade that's going to be coming forward. This is a Oh, so they, so they extended uh, it beyond the three years office. that was originally yes. Uh, proposed. Yes. So that's a, that's a big win right there. Uh, and, and then the other fun thing here is that uh, when we were talking about this earlier, uh, before we started recording, you mentioned that this is actually going to be applying to single-family homes if they are owned uh, by uh, very large corporations. So the these rent caps that we're talking about are not going to be applying to anything that's built within the last 15 years, and they are not going to apply to single-family homes if they're you know owned by mom and pop landlords mm -hmm. or whatever, as long as it's you know a relatively limited number of units. But when it comes to single-family homes that are owned by these massive horrible corporations like Blackstone, this hits them. And this is great because uh, I forget if it was if Alex Jones was the one one of the guys that was implicated with this, but um, I, I believe it was uh, which which was the the Fox News talking head. Oh no, it's Sean caught, Hannity. Um, yeah, Sean Hannity owns like fifteen hundred houses across this country. Yeah, fuck that guy. Yep. Uh, so th him and th his ilk 
uh, who own whole swaths of single-family homes across the country, but more specifically across California, uh, they will not be able to continue their rent-gouging practices, uh, which have been so incredibly damaging in areas like South Los Angeles, where you know single-family homes are absolutely like kind of the norm in a lot of LA because our zoning policies for you know decades and decades were absolutely awful and racist and that's a much bigger story for another time but the uh the name of the game right now is that most of the housing that exists in like south los angeles and in the the middle of the city 75 percent of the uh, residential real estate in the city of los angeles is covered by single family homes so blackstone following the 2008 crash went in and and like basically just sucked up all of these properties that had been foreclosed by these banks that had been engaging in these predatory lending practices that had specifically targeted communities of color and took these homes off of the hands of actual owners and then put them onto the rental market oftentimes renting to the people who had you know previously owned them or you know other other people in similar financial situations and are just absolutely uh, running wild with the these horrible practices uh, across the entire city of Los Angeles, and this w- this bill, uh, assuming that it does go through as planned, which looks likely, uh, would actually put a limit on what those companies are able to charge as far as rent increases are concerned, which is great. But it also won't apply to any apartment that is newer than 15 years, which seems like a big hole, Correct. especially in which, LA, uh, as a lot of the rental yeah. stock has been around for a long while and is protected under RSO. So like there's still going to be some big gaps, but it it seems like it is a very good step in the right direction. Uh, From what I've been reading, the uh, California uh, Realtors Association has not released a statement yet, um, but I imagine (laughs) that when this bill gets Uh, signed, they're going to sue to try and stop it. Uh, because this is coming right after their bread and butter. Um, So we may have to wait another year or two for this to work its way through the courts before we actually get rent control. But we finally got Gavin Newsom to, like, take a stand on this issue. And, like, seeing kind of like Anthony Rendon coming out to, like, get this deal done shows just how popular this is and how much pressure they've been under. Because if they weren't getting extreme amounts of pressure from the public to make rent control a reality, they would have just let this die. They would have just let it die in appropriations or in the rules committee or have sent Mm -hmm. it to the floor knowing that it would get voted down and, like, that would be the end of it. The fact that they came together to craft a deal that they know is going to pass says a lot about the fact that they know this bill has to go through, and if they don't get rent control done before the 2020 election, they're afraid they're going to lose their seats. Yeah, and on top of that, it's also worth pointing out that uh, this bill still does not go far enough to satisfy folks uh, like Michael Weinstein from the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, and he is still moving forward with plans to put a stronger rent control uh, measure up on the ballot for folks to vote on. So we're looking at like the same Prop 10 fight all over again in 2020. So brace yourself, folks. Like even though this bill is going through and it does look like it's going to make it all the way through and actually get signed into law, it does not go far enough to satisfy folks like Michael Weinstein. And it is going to be a continued fight. So this is it's going to be really interesting to see where 
all of these interests end up spending their money in, in the coming uh, election cycle because we still have a potential, though I, I believe that uh, the potential is kind of waning, for Article 34 repeal to be up on the ballot. Uh, it looked The reporting that I saw today made it look like that was less likely to be making it through, but it's still possible. Mm. Um, I mean, honestly, that one, like... I feel like rent control is ask. really important, but like the the Article Thirty Four, like getting rid of that, frees up states and cities, states, oh, sorry, so frees much. up cities and counties to build yeah. actual affordable housing and to get around like these NIMBY blockades, and that's Absolutely. kind of the real problem. Is like rent control, and even this kind of rent control, like it's cool if you're in an apartment and you can afford yeah. that apartment. Even then, like when you're looking at an eight to ten percent yearly increase, that means your it apartment is going to get really expensive after you've lived in it for four or five years, and that price Especially isn't going to come down like if you move out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So without like actual so, affordable housing guaranteed or being able to be built, I feel like we're just kicking the can down the road. Like we'll staunch the crisis ish for a little bit, but then rents will just continue to explode. And since earnings aren't yeah. rising at the same cost as rent, you know, I'm not very good at math, but even I can see that those <laughs> equations don't balance. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a huge mess, and it's going to continue to be a huge mess for the foreseeable future. Like, there is so much work to be done, and this last legislative cycle was absolutely just catastrophic when it came to housing policy. All of these amazing issues that have been brought to the fore were just nuked in committee after committee after committee and didn't make it through. And it's, you know, taking some solace in the fact that at least one of these measures is making it through and potentially getting signed into law is, well, I, you know, it's a small hope, but it's still something. And that's that's helpful, at least. And 1482, and I'm going to have to look at the revised language because they haven't put that up on the California legislature Correct. site yeah. yet. But the original 1482 before the deal also included a section where if you have an affordable housing covenant that runs out, you have to give the county or city the option to buy it to keep that affordable Ooh. housing. So that's that like, because, be and that got rolled in from a different bill because when there was that slaughter in May and like all of the rent control bills basically got voted down yeah. in the span of like 48 hours or tenant protection bills got voted down in the span of 48 hours, 1482 was the only one that made it through and they rolled in a couple new provisions to try and yes. like strengthen it. So hopefully some of those were kept, but we're going to have to go and like, and look at that. But this is pretty exciting. Um, you know, not a perfect solution, but a lot better than like not having anything at all. So, you know, it, yeah. it, this is kind of one of those, you know, politics is the art of compromise. So, you know, I'll yep. compromise on not, you know, burning down every landlord's house <laughs> for the time being. And, uh, like, so, and like we said earlier, like this is literally breaking news. So we'll have a lot more information, a lot more clarity as to the actual impact of 1482 uh, next week when we, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about this again, because we like, like you just mentioned, we do not actually know the full extent of the negotiations and what has been included and what has been excluded, what has been changed since it made it into the, uh, made it through the assembly and or through in, into the appropriations committee where it was being held up. It's currently in the rules committee. So it, We'll hopefully clear that pretty well. That was what this whole announcement was about from Newsom mm -hmm. and the other leaders. 
was that they had agreed to a bunch of uh, modifications. So the final details on what those modifications are will be coming out soon, but you know, after we finish recording, so we won't be able to talk about it until next week. So yeah, uh, yeah. and then uh, before we move away from the legislature entirely, uh, AB eight five seven, which is the Public Banking Act, yeah. uh, is going to the floor of the Senate. So it made it out of committee, um, relatively unchanged. Uh, so it's going to be going yeah. up for a full vote in the Senate and. Uh, it recently got a shout out from Bernie Sanders, who said, "Hey, California is like getting ready to experiment with public banking. We should experiment yeah. with public banking on a a national yes, level should. to have states and cities have works. their own banks so they can invest in green infrastructure and affordable housing. So yeah. hopefully, eight five seven passes through the Senate. It it won pretty easily in the Assembly. Uh, the Senate is generally the more conservative of the you know." bicameral uh, chambers. Uh, so we'll have to see if it goes through, but I'm, I'm hoping that with the momentum and the fact that this bill really just creates the structure to form public banks, we'll begin to see that yeah. moving forward and also has them work in concert with the credit union system to be able to like uh, move money around and like do the things that a bank does so that they don't have to write an entire new set of banking regulations to allow yeah. uh, municipal public banks. Uh, but that one's also really exciting. It's not sure when it will be coming up for a vote, but it will be in the next few weeks. So we'll definitely keep you updated on that as, you know, Chris Absolutely. and I both, uh, you know, obviously you're Chris, uh, but we both worked on uh, the the uh, Charter Amendment B, which did not pass uh, in the, the city of Los Angeles, but was the yeah. first time that anyone in the United States of America got to vote on forming a public bank. So that defeat may At lead to a victory, like and I, I'm kind of excited time, yeah. to see what happens there. Yeah, no, it's it's very exciting, and and this is a uh, a tremendous you know, step forward in the right direction of actually giving municipalities and, uh, you know, cities, counties, whoever, the control over their finances in a meaningful way. Like right now, people are, all, all of these institutions are so wrapped up and tied down by what the big banks want from them that they cannot pursue the goals that they might be setting in their legislatures. And this would really open that up. And it's really exciting to see it moving forward. And hopefully it does now make it uh, through the state Senate general, like, you know, the floor vote that's going to come up uh, without, you know, facing any real challenges or amendments, because if it does get modified, then it has to go back to the assembly and, you know, they have to redress uh, what is going on between those, reconcile the two, and then, then it can go on. But it does look like there's a very decent chance that it will make it all the way through to uh, Newsom's desk and get signed into law. So that's extremely exciting for all of those public banking advocates across the state of California and especially here in Los Angeles following that uh, really just, you know, gut-wrenching defeat that we had back in November 2018. Yeah. So uh, after that high note, let's, uh, let's hit a couple of low notes uh, with everyone's yeah. favorite segment. <sighs> Cops, y'all. So, uh, we all heard the, like, breaking story. It made national and international news. A sniper shot at an L.A. County sheriff's deputy just outside of his uh, station, and they mobilized SWAT teams and helicopters, and the mayor of Lancaster came out and demonized homeless oh, yeah. people and mentally ill people. And yep. what actually happened? Yeah, so this was a uh, fake sniper attack on Wednesday, August 21st. Uh, Deputy Angel Reynosa, who is 21 years old, 
called in the attack over the radio and uh, managed to cut two holes in his uniform and get himself transported to the hospital seeking medical attention for his non-existent injuries, um, which I'm really wondering what was going on there when uh, um, I'm sure the EMTs were very confused by the fact that there was no blood involved. But anyway... Here's what he said on the radio when this happened. Yeah, that, that's the thing Quote, that, before, sorry, before you go on, that was the thing sure. that kind of is surprising me is like he showed his fellow deputies a hole in his shirt and they immediately two rushed holes, him to the hospital. The yeah, yeah, I mean, it was one hole that, well, he just, yeah, but, but he, he, they rushed him to the hospital <laughs> even though one, like apparently. it didn't look like he was injured at all. Um, and that Jesus, was just the part so... that kind of amazed me is nobody like oh. stopped to be like, Huh, it doesn't look like you got shot. They were just like, oh my God, yeah. you said you've been shot. Let's take you to the hospital. And like, then it kind of became apparent when the doctor was like, so, you know, just the physics of the situation, you should have more injuries mm-hmm. here. And then they started asking questions. Not before they got the SWAT team out there, but like after the doctors, the doctors were like, so it doesn't seem like this guy was shot. Yeah. So on the radio, he said, quote, I have taken shots from the north of the Lancaster helipad. I think I'm hit in the right shoulder, uh, end quote. So, uh, I mean, that seems like you would be able to, if you're, if you're collected enough to be able to radio this in, you would probably be able to tell where it was that you had been hit. Um, but apparently there was some confusion. Uh, of course, this, this story immediately blew up. Uh, one of the headlines that popped up uh, in particular from AB7, um, ABC7 rather, uh, covering this incident said, quote, gunmen still on loose after sheriff's deputy wounded in shoulder at Lancaster Station, end quote. Um, so just to really highlight like what was going on here, two of the lines that popped up later in the article, quote, a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy, uh, Sheriff's Department deputy was wounded in the shoulder Wednesday after a sniper opened fire on the agency's Lancaster Station, authorities said, end quote. And then later on in the article, quote, authorities immediately set up a perimeter in the area and launched a massive search focused on the nearby four-story apartment building, end quote. So it turns out, that this particular four-story apartment building uh, provides mental health services to some of its residents. And the mayor of Lancaster, one R. Rex Paris, uh, immediately called for the removal of the facility, claiming that it was a danger to the community in its current location. On Saturday night, the sheriff's department held a news conference at 11 p.m. to announce that the sniper attack had, after all, been a complete fabrication and had been just... Uh, a hoax, straight up. Uh, So following the revelations that the deputy had faked this attack, the mayor of Lancaster, of course, uh, walked back. No, what am I kidding? He doubled down on his calls to have the facility removed. Even with police now saying the shooting was a hoax, Paris says his feelings still haven't changed. It is still primarily used to house mentally ill people. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know they should not have a clear shot into the sheriff's parking lot. Paris also adds that Reynosa may need some help himself. But it's just so sick what he did. You know, you, you have to think that perhaps he needs to move into that apartment. Which I think is, I think that one's just absolutely amazing that when everyone's like, this this facility is not a danger to the officers. And he's like, well, we should still burn it down anyways because I hate people who need help. 
Yeah, so he later added that he wanted to make some changes to the sheriff's department's building, uh, like this office in Lancaster, in order to add some kind of a barrier between the apartment complex and the the uh, the, the sheriff's building itself to protect these deputies from a threat that doesn't actually exist. Like this is all purely a figment of his imagination and this uh, deputy who faked the entire incident. So from a written statement that was issued by uh, Mayor Paris of Lancaster, quote, the facility should not have windows overlooking the sheriff's department. And I am tired of these nonprofit facilities locating in Lancaster, bringing problems from Los Angeles into our city, end quote. So, yeah, he's a special one. And so on Tuesday, protesters ended up gathering uh, in front of the Lancaster City Hall uh, demanding Paris's resignation, which is uh, totally unsurprising. And props to all of y'all that went out in that heat up in Antelope Valley and demanded his resignation for being a complete, um, a completely awful mayor and, you know, demonizing the mentally ill and formerly unhoused. Uh, and generally being a pretty awful human being. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, this guy, what is he doing as, uh, how is this guy the mayor of Lancaster? How is this the, like, what, what is going on? He's, well, he's also oh. engaged in like several feuds with several people. Like he got a guy sent to jail for like 10 years because he was convinced oh, that right. this man committed murder. And it turns out the guy didn't. And had nothing to do with it. Yeah, no, it, the, like, Rex is a special type of, Get like, small-town oh, tyrant that hopefully we're seeing the last of, especially as, like, Lancaster becomes a bigger city and more people move there. But, yeah, Rex is, um, he's a special, special. case. And uh, it's really sad that he has won elections and been put in a position of power where he can exercise this type of authority and, um, yeah, folks in Lancaster, if we have any Lancaster people listening, hit us up at Ground Game. Let's see if oh, we can get sure. a recall election going because, like, <laughs> love to help Rex Paris <laughs> should not be in charge of a sock no. drawer, let alone no. a city. <laughs> uh, sock drawers. Fun. Oh, yeah, no, and that one's, like, this one, uh, again, is amazing, you know. We have LAPD that has lost and mishandled thousands and thousands of rape kits and sexual assault investigations over the years. You know, but a, a deputy cries wolf, and you can literally get a million dollars worth of officers and helicopters oh, yeah. searching for a gunman that doesn't exist. And it it's takes, complete. it took what? 48 hours for this, the sheriff to come out and admit that, like, it didn't happen? Oh, like, no, no. No, no, no. That was on Saturday night that they com that they admitted that it was a hoax. They they were leaving this one rolling for like a long time. Yeah. It took, so it was the shooting, the quote unquote shooting, uh, took place on a Wednesday, and it wasn't until Saturday night at eleven p.m. that they had this news conference where they announced that oh yeah, so that actually wasn't real. Um, oh, and by the way, of course, uh, Sheriff Villanueva did not show up to talk about any of this because, of course, he didn't. Why would he show up and you know actually participate in saying, "Whoopsie, we uh, we screwed up here." Amazing. And the, the thing, just to sort of like tie a bow on this one, so it turns out that this deputy, who was a rookie, I think he was only with the department for like a year or so, uh, like was known for making stuff up. 
Like he had been investigated Wait, for dishonesty <laughs> before. Really? Yes, and he was protected by Alex Villanueva. Holy. And it wasn't until like it became abundantly oh, clear man. that there was no sniper, there was no shooting, that, that, that Alex finally had to throw him under the bus. But this is a, a deputy that was already is under it suspicion. Throwing him and under the bus when it's like he actually legitimately was being fraudulent. I'm not saying he didn't deserve to be hit by the bus. I'm just saying <laughs> Alex gave him a nice little shove off of the curve, but it, or off of the curve. Uh, but it was it was yeah. it it takes that level of dishonesty and something that the the department cannot hide because they made such a show of it. You know, like the news media doesn't just find out about stuff like this. You know, like accidentally, like the sheriff's department was calling them and had their P officers like activate and was literally talking to the BBC and international news outlets about what was happening and then had to walk that all back. And it's, a, it's an amazing embarrassment. And it's also something I think that, that points to the fact that the LA County Sheriff's Department is rotten from the core. You know, a fish rots from the Absolutely. head. And when you've got someone like Villanueva who is like, I can get away with whatever I want, I can pull all the Trumpian fascist bullshit that I want, that leaks down to deputies. Like, they understand that they can get away with more and not get in trouble. Yeah, and so it's worth pointing out, we, we didn't talk about this earlier, but uh, Ground Game and ACLU and a bunch of other coalition allies actually held a couple of town halls to talk about uh, the bullshit that is being peddled by Alex Villanueva and the sheriff's department as a whole. Um, and we're talking about the ways in which we can, we can actually try to hold uh, him and his deputies accountable. Uh, so that forum that we had on Saturday here at, uh, Emmanuel Presbyterian in, uh, Ridley Thomas's district, uh, was the first of a few of these forums that we're holding, uh, around the County and it went really, really well, and people are getting plugged in and activated about this. So, stay tuned for more updates on what it's going to do, what, what it's going to take to actually uh, hold Villanueva and his complete uh, bullshit agenda accountable, and actually get these deputies to face some repercussions for their completely. Uh, just utterly unacceptable behavior. Um, it, also worth reminding everyone that they are currently under FBI investigation for all of their uh, gang activity within the department because that's literally something that is happening is that they have all of these gangs that operate within the department and are doing hazing rituals and uh, rewarding folks for uh, uh, administering beatdowns on uh, on inmates within the prison system, and it, it's just <laughs> there, there's there's all of these things that are so completely broken with our sheriff's department, and this is just you know the the latest cherry on top of this completely fabricated sniper situation and how long it took them to realize and come out and talk about the fact that it was a complete hoax. Yeah, it's, uh, it will, you know, there's not going to be hopefully too much more to report on this one. Like the, the deputy has been fired, yeah. um, after making stuff up for a while. Probably uh, face some Alex targets. is not going to make like a whole big statement or reform the forest, but <laughs> of course he he's won't. getting he's pressure from like from every end. So hopefully we will be able to catch, uh, Alex in a pincer move and he's going to be caught between the LA County board and, uh, hopefully we are able to get a ballot measure on that's going to give the Civilian Oversight Commission some teeth so they can actually investigate the sheriff oh, that's, rather that's than like where we're at already, now yeah. where they're like, hey, we want this information. And the sheriff can just be like, no. And that stops the investigation. So yeah, this is going to be, be like, the ballot. 
Yeah, it's going to be a lot of stuff moving forward. But like, you know, for anyone who's like, man, we shouldn't have elected Alex Villanueva. It's like, you know, I'm a little bit of an accelerationist in this point where if we have a sheriff <laughs> who is so really, bad at his... Really, that far, Bushido? No, well, I mean, in this case, because like we finally have a sheriff who is so absolutely bad at his job and dealing with like his civilian oversight, the, the, the county tell. board of supervisors <laughs> is like, yo, we need an adult in the room. We need somebody watching oh, yeah, what yeah, you're yeah, doing. Yeah, so this is finally going to give us the oversight that we need to actually push back on these abuses, because if we allowed McDonald to stay in office... He would be bad, but he wouldn't be this bad. We wouldn't have this kind yeah. of like pivot point where we can finally push the county board to take real radical action against the sheriff. Now we have that. The unfortunate thing is we needed somebody like Villanueva to show like just how broken that system is. Um, and, you know, the sheriff's department is huge. It is thousands and thousands of officers. It's not going to be reformed in one or two election cycles, but I bet we can cut down their body count. I bet we can get rid of the gang members. I bet we, we can do a lot to. to make them a more well-functioning department. Um, you yeah. know, their, their budget every year is like $3 billion. Most of that goes to like the jails, but damn, like they're getting a lot of our money from the County and they're, yeah. you know, the when it comes to the un controls those purse strings. Yeah, and when it comes to the, the unincorporated parts of L.A., like, L.A. County Sheriff's deputies are the closest mm -hmm. thing to a government in a lot of those parts of the city because we only have five county board members. You know, like, they call them the five little kings, not just because they, like, have a lot of power, but because they are so incredibly far removed from the people that they actually represent because their constituencies are bigger than most states. So, you yeah. know, this is, again, this is going to be, like, a long one that we'll be talking about uh, for quite a while um but at least this one deputy lost his job like that's always a win um so let's let's move on and talk about uh garcetti and his green new deal um which is a really yeah. lame green new deal and is like <laughs> not really a green new deal but uh he had some exciting uh, question mark announcements <laughs> about like some new market-based solutions so let's let's talk yeah. about that for a sec yeah, so I mean, it's really it's summed up beautifully in this uh, this one tweet that he put out, uh, for which he was rightfully dragged. So, from Eric Garcetti, uh, hashtag Green New Deal LA is about making sure every Angelino has the opportunity to benefit from a more sustainable future. Uh, notice the point that he's saying every Angelino, and then he proceeds to say we're increasing at. LADWP rebates for used electric vehicle purchases to $1,500 and adding a new rebate for EV charger installation. So thank you, Mayor Eric Garcetti, for increasing the accessibility of the benefits of your purported Green New Deal uh, to everyday Angelinos um, by making something that is utterly unaffordable to everyday Angelinos slightly less utterly unaffordable uh, while still keeping it utterly unaffordable because you have no idea what the hell you're talking about. So well, also there one were a of these ton were of like, great replies. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also this is one of those things, and I love rolling this statistic out because when I was doing this climate town hall, you know, one of the, the people in the audience, like we opened it up for questions and every white guy in the audience was like, this isn't a question. It's like, well, then don't fucking answer. Like, say it. <laughs> like, this is the question period, not the question, like, make a, not a statement period. But anyways, you know, he was like, buy an electric car, get solar installed on your home. And what I wanted to point out is, A, people, not, not everyone can afford that. Things. But B, an electric vehicle only solves half the problem. And it, it honestly doesn't solve the most, like, harmful part of that problem because... 
the 40% or 40 to 50% of the pollution from cars comes from non-tailpipe emissions, from the rubber on your tires wearing off, from the the brake pads wearing off. And especially when it comes to that rubber coming off of your tires, it basically becomes aerosolized. And when it goes into your lungs, it is so small that it goes directly into your bloodstream. Like, it just literally passes through your lungs into your blood and keeps poisoning you. So, like... A Tesla is still poisoning you, just not with carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide. It's just doing it with aerosolized rubber and, like, other toxic ingredients that are going into your lungs and, like, spreading throughout your body. (laughs) The only (laughs) way to solve this... Yeah, the only way to solve that is to, like, get people to drive less. You can move more people in a bus that's creating fewer non-tailpipe emissions than having that same number of people in their own car. And as I'm back to, like... Use rail. (laughs) Well, as I'm back to like being a driver for the first time in over a decade, it is amazing to me to sit in rush hour traffic and look around at every car and see them all just with one person, especially when it's like a suburban that could fit like nine people very comfortably. And there's just one dude in it. And you're like, why do you need that? Why do you need that much space? What is wrong with you? Hashtag like slash rant on that one. But, you know, more of more of Eric, like kind of missing the boat uh, because he could have been given like he could have been giving away uh, rebates to like get an e-bike that would get people out of their cars that was the thing like all of these responses on Twitter were like hey so why don't you just apply that to people buying electric bicycles like all these people being like yo I bought an electric bicycle it's basically replaced my car I use it all the time and it's so incredibly effective like why don't we do this and have like more bike lanes also, here's the thing: and is course, if you're going to, I got a response to that. Like, if you're going to go buy sort of a newer generation used Prius, you're still spending twenty thousand dollars on that car. Oh, a yeah. you like an electric bicycle? You can get an electric bike for fifteen hundred bucks for like one of the cheap, yeah. like Chinese-made ones. If you want to get like can a nicer one, it'll LED cost you like. Did that for rebates? Well, it, it, you know, if you're getting like a newer, nicer one, it'll cost you like $3,500 to $5,000. Like $1,500 off of that is a really sizable That's chunk huge. of that purchase price, whereas it's kind of negligible when you're talking about a car. And so it's just like this is money poorly spent by the city. Like, because obviously tax rebates means money they're not bringing in. It's effectively them spending yeah. the money. And it's yeah. just, if you're going to be giving away money, give it away in the most effective way possible, not in this really stupid way that is continuing this sort of like greenification of the West side where people can afford to buy these expensive cars while ignoring the rest of the city where the rest of us are like, well, I don't want to own a car or I can't afford to own a car, but I ride a bicycle and the bus to get around. Why don't you help me with that? Yeah, and we really, like, fundamentally in Los Angeles, we need to be changing our, we need, we need to be getting away from our car-centric infrastructure development plan. Like, cars cannot be the solution for mobility for everyday Angelinos. We know that. And, you know, study after study has come forward talking about the fact that you need to have protected bike lanes, you need to be having dedicated bus lanes, and all of these measures, and, you know, put some shade on the damn sidewalk so that pedestrians aren't dying of heat, like, when they're out there. And, you know, maybe maybe some of our unhoused neighbors might actually be able to benefit from that as well, because shade trees are great for literally everybody. Um, anyway, so we, we, we need to be implementing these changes and pushing for something like a $1,500 rebate on used electric vehicles is just so incredibly short-sighted and just 
honestly, it's just such a stupid idea as far as priorities are concerned from our mayor. Like, what the hell are you thinking? Get well, on this board is, with what was going on and actually make some changes that make a meaningful impact for folks. Come and on. this is one of the reasons that, like, the work that Sunrise LA and Stand LA and PSR are doing that's so important yeah. is holding people like Eric to account because you can't just slap the Green New Deal label on any stupid yeah. solution that is like a market-based like sort of solution like we need to be pushing them to actually pass a realistic Green New Deal and like under like and I also have some understanding that like IBEW 18 with the election of John Lee has more power than they had before that election and we're fighting that also but we need to make sure that the people who are in power understand that we want real solutions. And that again, like we have 18 months to peak carbon emissions. Uh, we as the city yeah. of Los Angeles have a huge role to play in that as the owner of the largest port on the West coast and basically yep. the largest port for the U S like yep. LA by itself could make a non-trivial, very meaningful impact on carbon emissions in this country if the people that we elected really cared about it. Yep. So, all right, after yelling <sighs> at Eric, uh, which <laughs> never get old, uh, you know, it's always no, it's fun not. to do, uh, his buddies in the charter school industry have gotten oh, yeah. just absolutely exposed with some really shocking stuff. Like, I understand when you're writing private emails, you don't write a private email assuming that it's going to get leaked. Um, but when you're engaged in, like, a decades-long conspiracy to gut public education, maybe you should be a little bit smarter about what you're putting in emails. Because <laughs> if they get leaked to Michael Kohlhaas, they're going to get out, and we're going to talk leaked. about them. So let's he talk about filed. what he just exposed. Yeah, so uh, Michael Cajas, uh, which is a pseudonym, uh, he filed a California Public Records Access request relating to uh, a whole lot of emails. And so back in June of 2019, uh, you know, just a few months ago, he got this just stash of emails delivered to him. And it is from the California Charter School Association, and uh, it is absolutely amazing. So I'm just going to read through this headline, and bear in mind, this is literally the headline of the article that he put up on his blog, because uh, it's amazing and exactly in tune with all of the other headlines that we've talked about. Quote, top secret document revelations. California Charter Schools Association aims to have 100% of California students in charter schools by 2030. Or, quote, charter-like public schools, end quote, whatever that means. And to get control of vast quantity of exceedingly valuable LASUSD real estate, which is worth untold zillions of dollars to zillionaire charter investors, privatizing boy genius and supreme commander of outlaw charter operation Ed Novate Olivier, uh, uh, sorry, Ed Novate, Ed Novate. Oliver, Ed Novate, I cannot read this. Ed Novate Oliver Sikat acknowledges out loud that this plan, quote, works well for people who fund us, not necessarily for the district, end quote, which undermines CCSA's claim to want to put, quote, kids first, end quote, to some extent. Just insert, <laughs> just insert some audio of me screaming. Because, Wow. So, yeah, and this is kind of, remember during the UTLA strike when the, the teachers and the teachers union were like, hey, the charter schools are trying to privatize us out of business. They want to steal all of our land. They want to sell it to private interests no, and sell out no, our students. And all of the, like, all of the strike, like, 
uh, critics and then the like centrists like Garcetti were like, no, the charter schools don't want to do that. They want to work with public education. They want to find a happy Kids medium. First, they want to work together Kids and first. like kumbaya it out. And guess what? It turns out that these greedy assholes are in fact greedy assholes. Surprise. So the California uh, Charter School Association's current mission statement reads, quote, a million students attending charter public schools by 2022 with charter public schools outperforming non-charter public schools on every measure, end quote. Something and that has never happened. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, not when you have actual equitable uh, comparison of the details because they are uh, notorious for getting rid of students who do not live up to their expectations in order to inflate their performance record and, you know, do extremely equitable shit like that. Uh, so what's fun with all of this is that in this email dump that Cole Haas got a hold of, um, back in October 2018, uh, CCSA was proposing a change to their current, their, to their mission statement to read, quote, Every student in California attending a great charter school or a great charter-like public school by 2030. So they're, they're talking literally taking 100% of our LAUSD students and instead of having them in any kind of a public school that is run the way that LAUSD wants to run them and the way that UTLA wants to run them, they want to run them the way that charter schools are run or just put them straight up into a charter school, 100% of them by 2030. Like what the hell is going on here? Look, the, the Broads know what they're doing, and they just want to turn school into, like, going to the Broad Museum where they have this huge collection of, like, knowledge that they have privately bought and withhold from the public. <laughs> and if you, if you want to pay to get in, you can get in immediately. Uh... But if you want to get in for free, then you got to stand outside the school, and if there's enough capacity to let you in, they'll let you in for a little bit, but they're not going to let you do any of the cool stuff. You know, that's a really apt analogy. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking about trying to make a Windows analogy, but it's like everyone uses Macs. No one would get a Windows joke. <laughs> I resent that fact because I'm currently using Windows on the machine that I'm reading this uh, Google document from. Yeah, but this is this is more of like what we've been saying for a while and what like public school advocates have been saying for a long while, that the charter school movement cannot be trusted, that there is an ulterior Absolutely. and like really disgusting agenda here trying to undermine one of the great innovations of American public life, which is public education. You know, like Vladimir Lenin had an amazing essay that he wrote talking about the, the insanity of American public libraries, that you could just walk in and get a book and learn stuff for free and how what? antithetical that was to like the idea of this like hierarchical society. And we know that, that, the charter school movement, that the Koch brothers network, that all of the most atavistic and reactionary elements in our society have been attacking public schools because free public education is a good way to equitize society. It is a good yes. way to level the playing field for everyone. And the people who want to remain wealthy oligarchs can't let that happen because they can only be billionaires when they don't have competition. And this is, I, I'm hoping this will finally cause some movement. At the other end, like, we have charter school scandal after charter school scandal after charter school scandal, and the state will not do anything to really oh, yeah. bring them into line until you have 60,000 teachers going on strike and shutting down the city. 
I, I hope that we see some movement, but because we're towards the end of the legislative session this year, we're not going to see anything happening for a while. Um, and it's, it's just going to have to be like more muckraking and more investigative journalism to keep uncovering this stuff and keep it at the forefront of people's minds. And then hopefully with 2020 and a shift towards a more progressive Democratic Party, and hopefully we have a more left-leaning candidate running at the top of that ticket, we can finally have this discussion um, because California is, you know, as liberal as they feel they can afford to be. So if you have a Joe Biden running at the top of the ticket, they're not going to swing that far to the left. If you have a Bernie Sanders running at the top of the ticket, you're going to see a lot more movement on progressive platforms and ideas and policy proposals. So get out there and knock some doors for Bernie if you want to save public education is basically where I'm going with that one. Yeah, no, that is that is the correct analysis. Uh, also, I love the fact that you are just straight up quoting uh, Lenin in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> hey, he, you know, he was he, he was one of the better ish Marxist thinkers because, um, like, yeah. I feel like there's always a spectrum there. But one of my favorite Zizek books is on Lenin, and he basically opens the book by saying, "Look, Vladimir Lenin got a lot of things about Marx wrong." So if we want to understand Marx, let's read Lenin and figure out what he got wrong. And it's a pretty good oh, read. And it point. also explains like how Lenin was kind of hemmed in and why he made some bad decisions and you know how he, he kind of like lost the through line, as it were. Uh, but uh, moving on from uh, charter education and public schooling, let's talk about this very tragic death that just happened on Skid Row, where a member of the L.A. Can family, Dwayne Fields, a very talented guitarist, um, who was known around Skid Row and around the downtown community as somebody who played a lot of events and was just like a really good community member who was caught out, uh, was murdered in his tent uh, seemingly randomly, um, just randomly targeted because he was someone who lived in a tent instead of a house. Yeah, so I'm just going to go ahead and read directly from the LA Times article on this incident, which uh, this took place on Monday, August 26th. Quote, Fields 62 was inside his tent around 11.30 p.m. when, prosecutors allege, another man set his living quarters ablaze. Responding officers found Fields walking down 6th Street, his body still burning. According to two law enforcement officials who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss the case candidly, end quote. Um, Continuing from later in the article. Horrific. Yeah. Uh, quote, Jonathan Early, 38, was charged Wednesday with capital murder in connection with Fields' death. Investigators have not offered a motive in the slaying or explained how the fire was set. It remains unclear if Early and Fields knew each other, but one law enforcement official told the Times that Early was also homeless, end quote. So this is absolutely an utter tragedy and a, a, a great loss for the uh, L.A. Can community. Um, they, there was a he- vigil that was held on Wednesday night, uh, for fields and, uh, at the vigil, Pete white, who is the executive director of LA can, um, uh, again, this is the Los Angeles community action network, an incredible, uh, group of folks who have been on the front line advocating for, uh, the rights of our unhoused neighbors for more than 20 years at this point. Um, so Pete white told the crowd that quote, through arts and culture, through his music making, through his guitar playing, he was bringing the community together, end quote. 
one of the other mourners at that vigil uh, was Skid Row fixture General Jeff Page, and he told reporters after the fact that, quote, our community has lost a great spirit, a great individual, end quote. So this is a, 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 a true tragedy. Um, I was actually at City Hall today uh, for the general uh, session that was held. Uh, we, were, we were actually, I was there to... Um, document and live stream a press conference that was being held by the Hillside Villa Tenants Association uh, talking about the fact that their landlord is reneging on his deal and is actually pushing for a rent increase. But we'll talk about that another time. Uh, We made it into the council chambers just in time to catch the adjourning motions, which is a time when our city council members uh, put forth uh, basically an in memoriam uh, section uh, relating to keeping f- folks in thoughts and prayers for uh, the loss to the community and the loss to our neighborhoods uh, w- that have happened in the last week mm-hmm. or so. And uh, Herb Wesson made a very touching uh, series of comments uh, relating to uh, relating to Dwayne Fields's uh, tragic passing and then the murder that uh, was committed. Um, uh, the fact that this, that he was on fire and walking down sixth street when uh, the police officers responded, it's just, no, it's just, it's, it's, it's just completely unbelievable. It's tragic on every level because there is like, if you haven't spent time in Skid Row and this is really hard to explain to people who haven't been down there and actually spent time down there. Um, even people who live in Los Angeles, like when I was out there for training for this job, like I ended up walking from downtown to Two Bit Circus, and that took me through Skid Row. And for a lot of my coworkers, the fact that I would walk through Skid Row scared the crap out of them, and they don't understand that this is just a neighborhood like any other neighborhood. People live there; they're minding their yeah. own business, they're doing their yeah. own thing. They're not there to hurt you. And they're doing what they can. Well, and survive. the people who people who are unhoused are far more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators of violence. But the narrative that we have going on in the city right now is that people who live on the street are violent and are mentally ill and are all on drugs and cannot be trusted and are just looking to steal your stuff. And, you know, I'm currently embroiled in a Twitter fight about some people in Chatsworth who were asking for LAPD to be able to more strictly enforce, like, encampment sweeps against people who are unhoused. And I keep having to explain to people, like, this doesn't solve the issue. Just beating up on people who are already vulnerable does not make society a better place. It makes this stuff more likely. It was just about six months ago that we had a series of murders where a man went around L.A. beating people to death with a baseball bat. bat. And then he finally was caught because he beat a man to death who wasn't homeless. And these stories keep piling up. And these are just the tragedies we know about. Last year, 918 people died on the streets of Los Angeles. We know the number is going to be bigger this year. We know that every year... And we know the number was higher last year because that doesn't include any of the people that were brought into any kind of a housing situation in those last couple of weeks of their life and then ended up dying in a hospital. Like these numbers are underrepresenting what is actually the true scale of the tragedy. And that's still nearly a thousand people. And that is definitely an undercount. Yeah. So 
Yeah, before we get too bogged down in uh, commiserating this, because I want to move on to our next story, which is directly connected. Um, and when we're talking about... Oh, yeah. yeah. No, and we're definitely lifting people yeah, up Yeah, when one. we talk about bringing people into housing, when we talk about getting people off of the streets, the main way that happens in L.A. is through the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. That's uh, The acronym for that is LASA, but they're the actual outreach workers and they're the bureaucracy that... Uh, gets people into the system, gets them services, gets them into bridge housing, gets them into permanent supportive housing, uh, gets them assistance with rent to get into like a regular apartment because the majority of people who end up homeless don't need permanent support. They just need short-term support to get back on their feet. So Ron Galperin, the LA City Comptroller, uh, released a report uh, on losses performance and the report itself is very damning. But it is also somewhat misleading. So this has become like a major point of conflict at the moment because the number of people living on the streets has increased by double digits this year. We know that. But we also know that Lhasa has gotten more people into housing this last year than they have ever gotten into housing before. So there's a real tension here between what LASA is doing on the ground, what LASA is doing as a bureaucracy, and then what the two elected bodies that control LASA, the County Board of Supervisors and LA City Council, are actually prioritizing in their budget outlays for LASA to do. So let's go into this one. And this one is going to get like pretty wonky and technical, and there's going to be a lot of numbers thrown around. Um, but you know, I would say if you want my TLDR kind of version, the bureaucracy of LASA, the budget process that funds LASA and sets their priorities is very broken. At the same time, the people who work for LASA and are out on the street doing outreach and relief work are doing amazing work and are making real progress, not just impacting single lives, but impacting whole communities and making LA a better place. But when you're trying to bail out the ocean, it's a real lift, especially when somebody keeps throwing buckets of water into the ocean every time you bail it out. So let's kind of like dissect this report and yeah. talk about where the conflicts have arisen, where there's some disagreements, and what it looks like as a path forward for Lhasa and for people who are caught out on the street. Yeah, so uh, going back to the start of this, uh, Ron Galpern released a scathing audit of Lhasa on Wednesday this past week. Uh, quote, the goals that were set by the city are not unreasonable, Galpern told the LA Times. Quite frankly, they are setting a pretty low bar to begin with. If you can't meet the low bar, that's a problem, end quote. So right out the bat, Galpern is being extremely confrontational with Lhasa and uh, just damning in his overall assessment. So he referenced the success rate that the agency had had with referrals for uh, substance abuse and mental health treatment as two of the more outstanding aspects in terms of how poor how poorly Lhasa was performing. Um, but then Lhasa actually countered his uh, narrative here by claiming that these are uh, really poor measures of actually, you know, 
checking what their success rate is because reporting on the details of those kinds of placements, specifically for substance abuse and mental health treatment, is actually a violation of medical privacy laws. Like, we're talking things that should not be used as the grading metrics for LASA that Galperin is straight out just running around saying, like, uh, as using as damning evidence that LASA isn't doing their job. So the LA Times uh, also pointed out, and this is honestly a, a just... Uh, an astounding statistic that apparently 67% of Lassa's outreach time in the city is being spent accompanying sanitation sweeps. And what's worth pointing out here is that those sanitation sweeps are uh, approved and dictated by uh, primarily the 311 system and our local uh, city council members offices, their, their regional offices, their district offices are dictating when these sweeps go out. And so we're talking about 67% of the time that LASA outreach workers are able to go out there and interact with the homeless. Two thirds of the time they are out there scrambling, trying to do their best to minimize the harm the straight up harm that is being inflicted upon our unhoused neighbors by LA sanitation and LAPD when they are confiscating everybody's belongings. Like there is some absolutely incredible reporting that came out of, uh, Lexus, uh, Lexus from, uh, uh, there's some straight up fantastic reporting that came out of Lexus, a reporter, uh, from LA taco who had this, these great articles that were talking about, you know, the lived, the lived experience of folks on our streets in Los Angeles experiencing these homeless encampment sweeps and the fact that like in your, the first time that you experience a sweep is the time that you're most likely going to lose like everything of any importance to you. All of your like keepsakes from your life before you became homeless, your identification, your information relating to your, uh, your prescription medicine, uh, any and all contact information you have for any kind of an outreach worker, all of that shit gets taken by sanitation and, uh, at, you know, under threat of violence from LAPD. If you were to try to like actually scramble and defend your property, um, it just gets taken. And it gets trashed. And so we've got lots of outreach workers out there who are trying to stop that from actually happening or trying to defend our unhoused neighbors from these, uh, these criminalizing sweeps. And two thirds of the time that they're out there actually supposed to be doing outreach is in these sanitation sweeps. Like that is an, uh, an absolutely astounding statistic. Like there's no possible way that, an unhoused person on the streets of Los Angeles is in any way going to be receptive to, Hey, would you like to talk about getting into some services? We can really help you, you know, get you into this shelter program, get you into this rehabilitation program, get you into this drug treatment program. Uh, yeah, you want to talk about this. Meanwhile, there's a fucking garbage truck compacting your tent and all of your personal belongings 10 feet away from you. Like this is not the appropriate time for Lhasa to be actually doing outreach. And the fact that their outreach workers are having to go out there and scramble to stop the police from criminalizing and destroying these people's property is just absolutely insane. Like why 
is why are the cops there in the first place? Why is sanitation crushing all these people's belongings? We want services for these folks. We do not want sweeps. We do not want criminalization. Like what the hell do they think is going to be accomplished with this? Like making, making these NIMBY homeowners happy that maybe the encampment got pushed, uh, you know, two blocks away for about a day or two before it came back to be in the same spot because it's not illegal to be camping on the fucking sidewalk. <laughs> so this is something that Sean, uh, a man that, that you know who lives in Koreatown, <laughs> that you, you uh, talked with during uh, K-Town for All Outreach, uh, he was quoted as saying, you know, the first sweep is generally yeah, yeah, when yeah. you lose your vital documents and, like, your important stuff. And that's something to consider here is if you're going to get into CES, the coordinated entry system, so that you can actually get services, you need vital documents to be able to prove who you are. You need to be able to establish your identity and be like, I am this person. I am an American citizen. I deserve Absolutely. like these services that you're offering. And when sanitation is coming by and throwing out the very documents that you need to get the services that are being offered by LASA, it seems like the county's right hand and the county's left hand aren't just not paying attention to what they're doing. They're actively fighting against each other. Absolutely. And like this, this really, I mean, the whole situation is just so fundamentally broken. Like the, the, this reminded me of the situation where, uh, our, our boy, oh, Eric God, Garcetti this is such a terrible went out to story. go do this photo op, uh, and was interacting with this unhoused woman in Skid Row adjacent and, you know, following immediately following that interaction, uh, sanitation came by and literally took everything that she had, including like the, the contact info for the outreach worker that she had been introduced to during Garcetti's like, you know, little photo op thing. It's like, uh, why, what is, what is it that the city is trying to accomplish by just taking these people's belongings and by crushing them and just depriving people of all of these important documents that are so necessary to access the damn services that the city and the county are supposed to be offering as a way to actually get out of being homeless. Like it's just so completely contradictory and we are just prolonging the suffering and, and the human uh, the human rights catastrophe that is just existing on our streets, we are prolonging that by continuing to engage in these completely broken practices that folks like LA Can and everybody in the, the Services Not Sweeps Coalition have been demanding that the city walk away from for years. Like these practices do not work. This is not how you get people out of being homeless. Like this is how you perpetuate the system that is so fundamentally broken and is keeping people stuck in tents living on the sidewalk. And then you've got folks like Mitch O'Farrell talking about expanding 4118, which is the city municipal code ordinance that prevents people from being able to sit down, lie down or sleep on our sidewalks. He's talking about expanding that so that you can't be within 500 feet of any park, which means that most of Skid Row is going to be impacted because San Julian and Gladys Park, a 500 foot radius from those is a damning, uh, like the, you, you cannot do anything within, uh, if you're not within 500 feet of those parks. And in addition to that, he's talking about 10 feet of any building entrance or driveway, like straight up, this is trying to turn every single part of LA 
into a red zone for the homeless population here. It is saying you cannot exist as a homeless person without being in a violation of criminal statutes. This is just straight up targeting. Also like the OC went through this where their big plan was to round up all the homeless and bust them out to like uh, a rural area and just like house them at basically the border of a national park and be like, we'll just pull them out of the city. And A, that removes them from all oh. of their community. It removes them from the ability to Hooray. access services, to lead a, a regular life. Camp. Because again, 40% of the people who yeah. are living unhoused in LA have jobs. Like the jobs just aren't paying them enough to live. Like these are people who are doing what they can to stay afloat and keep their heads above water and keep themselves fed and like deal with what they need to deal with. These sweeps not only make it harder for them to access services, they just straight up kill people. Joseph Reyes, countless untold others, died because they had all of their stuff stolen. And as we move into the climate crisis and it gets hotter and it gets wetter and it gets harder to live out there, more people are going to die in unnecessary ways. And in one of the richest cities, in the richest nation that has ever existed, it is just so absolutely Mm. unacceptable for us to even be contemplating those kind of rules. However, let's uh, shift gears. Yeah, let's shift gears a little bit here because we don't want to paint Lhasa as like the bad guy. They're not a villain here. You know, there are some people in the community that are calling for like the executive director to be replaced yeah. or to step down and to just no. reboot so, Lhasa. I think that's probably a step too far right now. I think there are things that can be fixed, but can't be fixed just by Lhasa. But Lhasa had a really good statement that they released pointing out some of the errors that Galperin made, um, maybe because he was looking at the data wrong or maybe because he was trying to uh, issue a report that was very scathing, like just because Galperin's the controller doesn't mean that he doesn't have a political agenda. Um, I, I'm not in his head, so I can't say why he wrote this report or you know, allowed this report to be issued the way it was, but Lhasa very correctly points out a lot of facts that are in dispute here. So let's, let's talk about that for a little bit and sort of like what Lhasa has been doing that's right, because as I mentioned at the top, they have housed more people in 2018 than they ever housed before. And that is a huge accomplishment. Absolutely. So Lhasa issued a response to this audit that was handed out to the reporters at Galperin's presser. Quote, unfortunately, this report is misleading. It ultimately says nothing about Lhasa's outreach efforts, which contacted record numbers of our homeless neighbors in the year it studied. Instead, it notes that certain metrics were ill-suited to evaluating that work while ignoring measures that show effectiveness, end quote. So, uh, you know, basically saying like, this is, yeah, it's a damning, it's a scathing report, um, but it's not even talking about the actual work that we're doing, so it's completely misleading. In the statement also, they like kind of break down the number, you know, the years where Galperin's report was looking versus the like the last year's figures that Lhasa was using. And they pointed out very correctly that Lhasa's budget and staffing has, their budget has tripled, more than tripled. I think it was up 340%. And their staffing has increased 260% just in mm-hmm. the last year. And like Lhasa went on a real hiring binge. And by the way, anyone out there who wants to like get into this, or if you have a like social work degree you're not using, Lhasa is still looking for a lot of people. There is an insane amount of need out 
out there. It took the city yes. and the county a Absolutely. long time to give them the budget to actually hire the people they need to do this work. That system's still being built. Like, this is an active conversation. And if you want to be a part of it, there's a place for you in for this, sure. and there's a place for you to enter in and do this really good work. And we know people that are doing this good work and are making an impact. And people who aren't coming at this from like a cynical perspective, yeah, so uh, ground game team members <laughs> of ours, and people who are doing this because they know this is the right way to use government to positively impact people's lives. But anytime you're working yeah. in a large system, in a large bureaucracy, there's going to be complications and there's going to be compromises and there's going to be things that don't work exactly the way that it works. When you have a bureaucracy that has several thousand employees, it takes a minute to right that ship. So uh, it's worth pointing out that one of the issues that they're dealing with here is that LASA is dealing with trying to do outreach to our unhoused population uh, while simultaneously dealing with the fact that the city and the county are utterly failing to provide any of the infrastructure that's necessary to actually you know, follow up on that outreach. We do not have the shelter beds that are necessary, the uh, rapid rehousing that's necessary, the safe parking that's necessary, the permanent supportive housing that's necessary, the affordable housing that's necessary, any of these things that are absolutely critical to actually trying to meaningfully address our homelessness crisis, the city and the county are both utterly failing to provide that kind of infrastructure. So LASA is out there doing this outreach and then they're being dinged for not getting people into these services that do not have the capacity to bring in new people. Like our system is so fundamentally broken on this. So uh, a candidate for the Los Angeles City Council's fourth district uh, who is you know, working with uh, a number of folks from Ground Game, uh, and uh, I'm I'm excited about her candidacy. Nithya Raman, who was also a co-founder of Sila, the uh, Silver Lake Echo Park area, Los Feliz, um, like this this homeless uh, services outreach volunteer group uh, from within the community. They're doing amazing work up there. Um, but she's got this great Twitter thread that we're going to be linking to in the show notes here, uh, and this. She's, she's basically talking about the, the article from the LA Times as well as the response from Lhasa and you know just the, the, the general audit from Galperin. And she's really d dives straight into, because this is, this is her bread and butter on this. And she goes in and uh, one of the key tweets from this thread is that saying, quote, since we voted almost three years ago to build 10,000 supportive units uh, supportive housing units in LA, not one unit is ready for move-in. We have less than 25% of the shelter beds we need to accommodate everyone on the streets. We have 200 safe parking spots for 9,000 people yeah. sleeping in cars. So what we're looking at here is a gross mismatch between what it is that we have demand for and what it is that we have a supply for in terms of services that are being provided. When it comes to any of these uh, you know, traditional economist approach to like, what did we do about this supply side problem? Da, 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 da. You need to be building more of this shit straight up. We do not have enough services to be offering to people and critics criticizing Lhasa for not getting people into services at the rate that they, you know, are supposed to be doing based on some metrics that are, you know, relatively and pretty much completely meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Like, this is utterly useless when it comes down to the fact that we do not have enough capacity. Even if Lhasa was working and got a hundred percent, 
if they even if they had a hundred percent turnover of people who they reached out to and got them converted into being in our services, they would still be they would just stop working. They'd be done after like two months. They'd be like, yep. all right, well, we're at capacity, so now what do we do? We don't have the beds. We do not have the housing units. We do not have the safe parking spaces to be able to accommodate the need that we have on our streets. We are letting these unhoused neighbors down every single day that we continue to go on without meaningfully addressing the problem on the infrastructure side. And that is on city council. That is on the board of supervisors. They need to step up. They need to provide more of these services. End of story. Yep. And it's also one where, like, as we're talking uh, about the county board's idea to have a right to shelter slash obligation to shelter, where that shelter is and oh, what that shelter means, because shelters, you know, as, like, in a shelter facility, that's not a permanent solution. People just need a place to be able to live. And it's not even a viable solution for most of the people out there. They are dangerous. They are... Uh, scary. You lose your belongings if you're in any of these shelters that are being provided by like the traditional nonprofits that operate on Skid Row. Like you cannot bring your stuff with you. You have to go and deposit it at the bin or at any of the other places that are uh, offering this kind of uh, you know personal belonging storage. The fact that it's called the bin and then they put everything into an actual literal trash can uh, and store it in a big grid of trash cans is uh, extremely telling as to what the cities and the county uh, honestly think about our unhoused population. Just throw yeah. that one out there. That's, a, um, that's a, a pretty good message as far as like what the city thinks of you as a human being. When they're like, oh, you need to store your bin. stuff. Here's a trash can. So, uh, yeah, Peter Lynn, uh, the d- executive director of Lhasa, is probably going to be spending a decent amount of a time uh, fighting for his job, I imagine, after this report came out. Because it seems like a lot of this report was set up to throw Lhasa under the bus. But he had a very strong statement that he released. Um, so it, let's talk about that one for a sec. Yeah, so Peter Lynn is the executive director of LASA, and in his response to Galperin, he stated that, quote, the day-to-day working of connecting with people on the streets requires passion and patience, forming bonds with our most vulnerable. These are individuals and families for whom the system has failed. Its pace can be frustrating, but by the measurements that matter, Los Angeles City and County have invested in programs that are reaching more people than ever before. LASA will continue to do this work. As more permanent and bridge housing come online, we will have more success helping our neighbors come indoors, end quote. Yeah. And this really gets to the truth of the matter. Like, this is the heart of it. We do not have enough beds. We do not have enough apartments. We do not have enough housing to handle the current crisis that we're dealing with. And until we have enough beds, shelter, housing, all of these things, there's, there's nothing that LASA can do to meaningfully address this problem. Like their hands are being tied by these agents, by, by the, the, the legislature that has complete control and authority over how successful LASA can be. And the fact that Galperin is going out there and criticizing them for not being more successful while we simultaneously like do not have any spare capacity in any of these uh, pieces of infrastructure is just, honestly, like the more, the more we talk about this, the more I think about it, the more angry I am at Galperin for the fact that this is just uh, completely 
missing the point. We need more shelters. We need more housing. And, you know, shelter is an extremely short-term solution while we slowly build out the infrastructure that's necessary for creating the permanent supportive housing and the low-income housing, extremely low-income housing, all of these types of subsidized, affordable uh, solutions that are so incredibly critical to, you know, implementing something that actually works like a housing first uh, methodology. That's, that is how you solve this problem is you build yep. housing and you p- put people in that housing and then you start to work on like, okay, so now that you're not living on a tent on the sidewalk, being harassed by people who decide to, you know, set your shit on fire and try to kill you. Well, now that you're not being you know, harassed by LAPD and LA sanitation on a week by week basis, maybe we can start talking about how it is that we get you into a better headspace for you to be able to deal with the fact that, you know, that our system has utterly failed you in this late stage capitalist environment in which we're all struggling to survive. Like it's just, everything is so fucking broken. I, yeah. I, and it's, it, this also ties right into the uh, AB 1482 discussion we were having earlier without actual affordable housing, without rent control, without, in a way, without a way to make sure that people in the city who are working and have stability now are protected in that stability. This crisis will just accelerate. You know, even though Lhasa housed more people last year than they have ever housed before, we still saw double digit increases in rent because Lhasa can't solve the problems of skyrocketing rent and out of control development and selling our city out to developers and investors who are only interested in turning a profit at the cost of every community. This is is like such a multi-layered problem. And I really want to end on the note of like, this is not entirely losses problem. They don't own all of this. They're doing what they can to solve a societal dysfunction that has been building for years and is still getting worse. And with the, the, the pace of our legislature, with the pace of our, our local authorities, with ensuring affordable housing, with like Article 34 still in the Constitution, we don't have a clear path to solve this. And it seems like going after LASA in this way is counterproductive and is a really good way to turn people away from wanting to get involved in that particular form of advocacy yeah. and outreach and work. And that is the last fucking thing that city that the city of LA needs. We need more people who want to do this work and we need them to know that they're going to be supported, that they're going to have what they need to succeed. Otherwise, we're just going to burn through people and turn them off and allow our society on a larger level to become more and more cynical. And that is not how we protect ourselves or protect each other or protect no. our communities, you know. To come back to the green new deal, we have to build resilient communities that work for everyone. We can't just have a west side full of Teslas and solar panels while the rest of the city is struggling to make the rent. We have to have these sorts of developments equitable and accessible to everyone, and the city's not doing that because that's really hard work. And it's a lot easier to say we installed hundreds of electric car chargers on the west side than it is to say we gave thousands of people affordable housing by telling the developers to go screw themselves. So 
This is yeah. like this has been a complicated one. Thank you all for sticking with us through this one. Uh, as we we quickly head towards what I want to say is probably one of our longest podcasts ever, and that's even without a reading series. Um, <laughs> but so to kind of kind of move towards things oh, that y'all should know about. Uh, first off, on Sunday there's going to be a knock meeting. Uh, if you are interested in getting involved with knock or even just seeing what we're up to, uh, 3 p.m. Sunday, uh, be at the ground game office, which is 56. 17 Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, you can generally find somebody to let you in, uh, but there's going to be a really like interesting meeting. We're trying to scale up knock. We're trying to really get this yeah. media push going. Uh, also, uh, I mentioned it before, but I'm going to mention it again. Uh, September 20th, get ready to strike. Like, get ready yes. to make some trouble for the people who run our societies and let them know that there's a critical mass of people out there who want to solve the climate crisis, who want to build resilient, strong, and sustainable societies. It's really important that you're out there. This is a fight being led by the youth. They deserve our support. They deserve our help. They deserve our fealty to their fight. And I really encourage you to get out there. Whatever city you're in, if there's not a strike happening in your city, fucking make one yourself. Uh, strikewithus.com is where you can go to sign up about that. You can also look at the Sunrise Movement, sunrisemovement.org, their website, and get more information. Get out there. Get active. Make your voice heard. Now it really matters. As we head into 2020, as we actually head towards people actually casting a vote in our interminable presidential elections, this is the time to make sure that the people in power see that, pe see that we care about this and we're not going to give them an easy time. So I'm not going to go through all of the Law 2 meetings that are happening this week because that's kind of becoming a thing that we do, but whatever. Uh, there is a general Law 2 meeting happening on Monday, September 2nd from 7 to 9 p.m. at the United Teachers Los Angeles, which is the address for that is 3303 Wilshire Boulevard. This is on the corner of Barendo and Wilshire in Koreatown. Uh, come on out. It's going to be in room 815. It is the general meeting for the Los Angeles Tenants Union. I will be there. Uh, come say hi if you want to. Uh, otherwise, just come and hang out and learn about what is going on in tenant organizing. Uh, there's going to be, you know, a West Side local meeting on Wednesday. There's going to be uh, East Hollywood local meeting on Wednesday. There's going to be a Mid City local happening on Wednesday. Uh, they've got the Vibe local is happening on Thursday. There's a lot of this stuff. Go to Los An to latenantsunion.org. Again, that's latenantsunion.org. Uh, and the calendar is posted there to get all of the information related to this. Um, but yeah, and then on Thursday from every Thursday from 730 till around 9, 930, uh, Ground Game meets at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard. We are there. We are constantly talking about all of this shit. And we are very happy to welcome new members showing up every single week talking about how to get plugged in and get involved in actually trying to make a meaningful difference in what the hell is going on in Los Angeles. So uh, come join us. It's fun. Yep. No, and uh, thank you all for sticking with us through this very, very long episode. Uh, this yeah. was really, really <laughs> dense, um, but there's a lot of stuff happening all at once, uh, and we're gonna keep keep uh, we're gonna keep keeping you informed as I stumble over my own words. Uh, but Chris, you want to take us out? As always, if you guys have if y'all have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of please visit our website at www.groundgamela.org 
or visit our Facebook page and send us a message there. Or just send an email on over to podcast at groundgamela.org. And if you'd like to read the sources that we're citing or quoting for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever it is that you're listening from uh, to hear us rant and rave about local politics in Los Angeles. Thank you yep. very much for listening. It's been a long one, uh, yep. but it's been good. And keep in, keep in mind, it is a, a long weekend since there's Labor Day on Monday. So just as a word of advice, uh, if you're thinking about doing anything stupid, just remember the judge isn't going to be in until Tuesday. Have yourself a lovely, <laughs> safe weekend. Celebrate the workers. Uh, take yeah. some time to relax. You definitely deserved it. You're all amazing and beautiful. Thank you again. Thanks, y'all. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more.